1: That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
0: We talk a lot about George Washington on this program, and we've talked in the past about how in the final year of his presidency, he left a farewell address printed in a newspaper in Philadelphia, then, of course, reprinted in newspapers all across the country with his advice to the American nation as he was leaving the presidency. We have on the program today John Avalon, who is the editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast, He is a CNN political analyst, and he's also the author of Washington's Farewell, the Founding Fathers' Warning to Future Generations, published by Simon and Schuster. John is the first guest we've ever had on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and it couldn't be for a more important topic. We're going to talk about the Farewell Address. We're going to talk about Washington and his politics, how he viewed the press, We're going to hear John call for a new generation of Washingtonians. And yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about Donald Trump. If you want to read George Washington's address, I'm going to have a link to it at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and also on Twitter at M-Y-H-I-S-T. John, thanks for coming on. My history can beat up your politics.
2: Hey, it's my great, it's my great pleasure. Uh, I feel like I'm coming to church. I love talking about the intersection of history and politics.
0: It it really is a book that I think was a, was appropriate for us to talk about. But of the many subjects that you could have tackled, and you chose Washington's final speech of his presidency. What compelled you to do that?
2: Well, it, it's the most famous speech in American history that has faded from our memory. I mean, this, this speech was civic scripture. It was more widely reprinted than the Declaration of Independence for the first 150 years of our republic. And uh, it's warning, and Washington wrote it as a warning. It was an open letter published to the American people in a newspaper, explicitly written as a warning from George Washington to future generations about the forces he felt could destroy our democracy. Chief among them are hyper-partisanship excessive debt and foreign wars so the warnings couldn't be more relevant and that to me is where uh, history gets really exciting is when we can study uh, and talk about applied history to provide perspective on our own challenges and our own problems and in the process is un- unveiling a great story which has been forgotten but a really timeless piece of American wisdom uh, which is all too timely.
0: I think you talk in a book about how it used to be something that was recited in schools it is still recited in Congress each year, but I did notice recently, um twenty twelve or twenty thirteen, it was recited in the Senate with two people present. Um so I, I wonder if you think it's it's faded uh, a bit too much.
2: Oh there's no question it's faded too much. I mean I you know, I think the, the the play Hamilton has um brought about a resurgence of interest in it because the song one of the songs for the play One Last Time, which was uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda told me when I interviewed him for the book, because actually it was the, the biggest applause of the night, um, is a recounting of the writing of The Farewell Dress and, and quotes directly from The Farewell Dress in its lyrics. Um, and, and that's a fascinating story in terms of how Lin-Manuel Miranda went about making the old stories new, which I think is part of our obligation. And and uh, and and you know Alexander Hamilton wrote the prose, but the ideas were all Washington's. And uh, Miranda tried to set it up that way Musically, but but you know that's that's a brief bright spot. Um, I'll say we've had another bright spot recently, to the in sort of reviving memory of of the speech beyond my book, which is President Obama's farewell address, uh, and he quoted Washington at length. But it's really been falling out of favor since the First World War. It gets picked up by different presidents at different times. Reagan loved talking about its warnings about religion. Lyndon Johnson loved talking about its warnings about the importance of education and a. Uh, enlightened opinion and to a self governing people um, but it, it was once taught in all American public schools uh that began after the Civil War as a way of uniting the nation so that level of familiarity um, that certainly has faded to our great detriment, i believe as a nation
0: it It seems like that uh, it's true that uh, people will pick up parts of it that they like, but the the author certainly intended to write it as a whole as a whole message,
2: sure. Um, I mean, you know, very explicitly, this was the sum total of Washington's hard-won wisdom from a half century of public service and war and peace. It's a remarkable document. I mean, it's really the autobiography of his ideas. And he wrote it with great care over a period of five years. Um, And the first draft was done in conjunction with James Madison at the end of his first term when he wanted to retire, but was convinced that if he did, the nation would degenerate into civil war. Um, and stayed on reluctantly for, for a, a second term. And that draft was primarily done by Alexander Hamilton, uh, and he brought in John Jay at the end for a second pair of eyes. So Washington kind of gets the band back together with regard to the, the authors of the Federalist Papers, uh, which is kind of cool. But I think it speaks to the fact he was trying to build a document beyond partisanship. And the way it itself was rooted in the founding father's understanding of history, uh, of ancient Greek city-states and ancient Rome, that itself is a fascinating undercurrent
0: and avoiding faction seems to be a key part of the document avoiding partisan splits that will rupture the country
2: oh that that that's key i mean you know the, the phrase faction is definitely the word the founders would have used we might recognize hyperpartisanship but the idea is essentially the same washington warned going back you know what's fascinating especially i think for you and your listeners is the way that the founders used history a real awareness of history, learning the lessons of, of the mistakes of history, the mistakes of democratic republics in the past, as a way to design our system, not to make it foolproof, but to adjust our system to account for that bad history. And 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 the rise of, of partisan factions w- was really a key one. Um, Washington uh, and Madison and Hamilton all were great advocates of the positive power of Moderation, the strength of moderation. They were very aware of the danger of extremes. That was hammered home by the French Revolution. Washington was very conscious about trying to build sort of a middle path between monarchy and the mob, and he spoke a great deal about the interplay between anarchy and tyranny. Um, but what, what, we, what he really was struck by, as were Madison and Hamilton, were these examples of these great Greek city-states. Um, that were able to unite in the face of a common enemy, but then they self-destructed in peacetime, in part because these partisan factions would come out and citizens would begin warring with each other. And one thing that I think is quite chilling about Washington's warning, he's very specific about the dangers of regional political parties, which is something that we've been wrestling with for a while. But but he's really specific about the danger of uh, the resulting dysfunctional democracy, Um, and that citizens grow so frustrated with the inefficiency and effectiveness of a deadlock democracy where partisan factions are fighting amongst themselves, Washington describes it creating a new type of tyranny, that it opens the door to a demagogue with authoritarian ambitions. And that's something that Washington warns explicitly about in the Farewell Address, and it's chilling to read.
0: And it seems like, if we go back to 1799, that the nation at that time benefited from having this rare kind of umpire a uh, neutral political player, perhaps an independent president, self-identified and respected that way generally, uh, with great stage presence, like a kind of a muscular centrist. Where now it seems much more difficult to be, a, if you're a centrist, you know all the excitement and action seems to be with the extremes, and centrists are just seem like people who are well, you're just you're just constraining your real feelings, something like that.
2: No, yeah, that's one of the, the, that's one of my great passions. You know, I I wrote a book called Independent Nation, which was a history of centrism in American history and how some centrist leaders succeeded and others failed. That was my first book. That's where I first bumped into Washington's farewell dress. I also wrote a book called Wing Nuts about uh, how the lunatic fringe is hijacking America about extremes. Um, I'm very much an advocate of and a believer in muscular centrism, and it's really about tapping into the Washingtonian tradition. That's what we need to do now. Washington and the founders understood that, cl- rooted in classical wisdom and their understanding of history, they understood the strength of moderation and the danger of extremes and excesses to a republic. They understood that moderation was an asset to effective governance in a democracy, but it needs to, but it's fallen out of favor and it's become equivalent with a mushy middle. And, and that is certainly not how Washington understood it. He, he would solicit a wide view of opinions. He was very comfortable making decisions. Um, but what he was really uh, dismissive of was those, what he called pretend patriots, people who would try to divide the nation against each other and pretend they're doing it if for lofty reasons when it's really about the venal, narrow pursuit of power. And so I think we need to rekindle that Washingtonian tradition of a muscular centrism uh, that he really epitomized. And that's one of the flow throughs, I think, of the farewell that's so profound. It's identifying the dangers of overreach, uh, whether it's you know t- becoming off center in our politics, in our finances, or in our foreign policy.
0: There's many messages in there about geographic unity, the the North, the South, the East and West all need each other, and political uh, unity, and I do notice that one of the great things I think about this book, and I'll just mention it again, it's Washington's Farewell, John Avlon, the, the Founding Fathers' warning to future generations. If you like my history, can beat up your politics. This is a book I think you're gonna like because I liked it and I found it to be like a pretty good, just function not only about the, as the farewell but also just a pretty good history book of the period. Well, thank you. Just kind of a good a good reading because you know Washington was so central at the time. It it could have been that he appreciated both Madison and Hamilton's contributions as good writers to assist him with this speech. Because, he, as you note in your book, he uses parts of Madison and parts of Hamilton, even though they're four years apart in the writing of it. But I I get the sense that you also think that it's because he wanted to balance the two sides that by the point of the end of his presidency... We're bickering a bit to Madison and Hamilton.
2: I, I, I do think I'm not belaboring a point for the sake of the poetry of it to say he was trying to create a document beyond partisanship. But he was a man in, in real physical and psychic pain when he wrote the farewell, particularly the second draft, and he was bitterly disappointed at the rise of partisanship in his own cabinet and the way that um, you know his two most talented surrogate sons, Jefferson and Hamilton, hated each other. And he wrote these fascinating letters where he tried to appeal to them to to remember something that I think we too often forget: rich large, which is that democracy depends upon an assumption of goodwill among your fellow citizens, and certainly that had been lost. And the partisan papers were attacking him, and the, you know the founders were attacking each other. And, and so Washington felt a degree of betrayal that towards the end of his second term, only 20 years after the declaration, was particularly directed at, at Jefferson and Madison. Um, so you know there, there are interpersonal dynamics here too, but he's very consciously trying to choose uh, to build something beyond partisanship that can stand the test of time because his key message is national unity. He talks about citizens by birth or choice. Elevating the idea of being an American, building an American character that outweighs any of their regional or or, or, or other distinctions, all those interesting differences, whether it's immigration status, what state you 're from that the the name American needs to claim our first loyalty and, and he 's very focused on that project and it 's why he 's also i think relevant to what what you know the the, the, the the history that that you know inspires you and attracts your listeners um He was very focused on the idea of education as a way to create that American character and and to um, create enlightened opinion, which he knew was essential to self-governance. And and he wanted to build a national university to help achieve that. And there, too, I think the the message is both sort of timeless and timely. and, and, And it's an extraordinary achievement. To have the gift of this document and to see its applicability, despite the fact that it has been, I think, unwisely forgotten in the past, although certainly people like Eisenhower have picked it up, and it, that was the basis of his inspiration for a farewell address. It was explicitly based on Washington's precedent of a warning. but. Uh, You know, We need to teach civics again. We need to teach American history again. We need to bind the country together again. And the virtue of Washington's farewell address, among its many virtues, is I think it's something that can still create a sense of common ground and common purpose for our country. It provides a lens that we can hold up and judge our own decisions against these first principles. And and that's why one of the things I hope is that we, we can rekindle not only interest in Washington's farewell and its political philosophy of independence, but a new generation of Washingtonians to really stand firm on that strong center ground and put the national interest ahead of special interests again because we've we've lost that to a large extent.
0: Well many people have found it useful throughout history and you note uh Eisenhower and he he seems to be he seems to be the one farewell address other than Washington's that um is remembered well, although as your book points out, and one of the things I like about your book is that you go so much into what happened after the Farewell Address was written, as well as the construction of the Farewell Address. And you talk about how different presidents have tried. Like, Bill Clinton put an awful lot into his Farewell Address. But to be honest, and I'm a pretty good study of politics and history, I don't remember a word of it. Um, seems like it's Eisenhower and <laughs> Washington.
2: Well, there, there's no question. Those are the twin peaks of presidential farewell addresses. And, 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 and farewell addresses do have the same sort of conversation between the generations that the inaugurals do, but they get less attention. And the story of Eisenhower's farewell is a fascinating story. And I found memos where the speechwriters are explicitly basing it on Washington's farewell. But, but as you mentioned, I, mean, I actually think the afterlife of the idea is fascinating, and it's never been done before in, in this way, because you see just the kind of outsized influence it had on American culture. You know, Andrew Jack, President Andrew Jackson's farewell address is entirely a riff on Washington's farewell address. Um, it's warning us against secession, you know, in the lead up to the Civil War, it's bandied about. Lincoln uses it in his 1860 stump speech he orders it to be read aloud to troops in the middle of the Civil War so they remember what they're fighting for. And then as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's deployed after the war to help reunite the nation, and it's taught in schools, uh, and it becomes standard operating procedure. And it's just, it really did succeed in that effort of creating a common currency of civic communication, a firm foundation, um, so that, that people recognize the sort of larger principles that Washington was, had laid out. Uh, and, and they were able to guide us for a long time, and 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 then because of the First World War, the Second World War, disproportionately, um, the advice seemed on the surface to be less relevant.
0: And sometimes used for like any any piece of, of rhetoric, even one written by a revered figure. Sometimes, as you point out in the book, used for quote bad purposes too. You you talk about the America First movement during uh, the lead up to World War II, where there would be big sign big. Uh, portrait-sized pictures of Washington standing behind these figures who were, if not in league with the, with the Nazis, all of them, they were sympathetic to American isolationism. Well,
2: well, I mean, you know, this is a fascinating story. I mean, you know, certainly we have had a resurgence of awareness of the America First movement in the run-up to World War II. They were isolationists. They invoked Washington and his farewell address a great deal. Um, and some of them were exposed to be motivated by anti-Semitism with regards to not wanting to get involved in World War II. But, uh, a fascinating and kind of harrowing moment that I capture in the book, and I've got photographs from that look like they're from a Twilight Zone episode or, you know, Dark Mirror. Um, it's February 1939, and the German-American Bund, uh, holds a rally in Madison Square Garden, and 20,000 American Nazis show up, and they've got a, a giant um, a 30-foot banner of George Washington at the top of the hall surrounded by swastikas. And they're handing out pamphlets arguing that George Washington is the first Nazi. And the keynote address, a guy comes out, and he's dressed up in sort of Nazi regalia, And remember, this is supposed to be, you know, German-American ethnic pride, although they're taking money from Adolf Hitler. And he gives the whole speech, uh, riffing off the farewell and talking about how Washington told us to elevate religion, be mindful of excessive debt. Um, and and stay out of other countries' businesses. Don't get involved in a foreign war. And and of course, the odious misappropriation is actually it's 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 horrific and it's poignant, in large part because.
0: Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in, but what if? Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvelukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Mook on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This is what Washington warns against, the pretend patriots, the people who try to divide Americans against each other while being, pretending to have the nation's best interests at heart. They are actively representing a foreign nation. And that's another, actually, really important part of the, 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 the speech and Washington's warning that's so relevant today. Washington warned specifically and was very, very focused on, on the point of foreign powers trying to influence and interfere with domestic politics to undermine our sovereignty. And and we've seen it at different periods in our history. And when I was writing the book, it seemed very distant, I confess. Mm-hmm. And then when the book came out and we started to find out more about Russian allegations of hacking to the election, it, it seemed uh, this is a, a rerun of a very old script that Washington warned us
0: about. Well, yeah, there's, there was many... Uh, there were dangers of of foreign intervention, particularly French, uh, in the 1796 election, and mm-hmm. uh, and I did and we at different times. There's been a little bit of involvement the British in Grover Cleveland's re-election, but it it does seem like it's very poignant. Now, did do you find that you at least the release of the book it was um, a, right around um, the inauguration of Donald Trump?
2: It was actually the book came out. I, I, this is pure coincidence. The book came out on what became the day of President Obama's farewell address, and that night, and I was covering it in Chicago, doing on-air commentary for CNN and writing for the Daily Beast, and uh, and and here, Obama, for the first time in his presidency, had an extended quote from Washington's farewell address. But um, so it's it's the timeliness has been a bit surreal, um, and I think that accounts for the response. We're already in a fourth printing.
0: Well, maybe it'll be a good thing that. Uh these times will cause the message to to come back, um, uh, the message of George Washington to come back more. Um, We we do have a president who, uh, to be objective, and and I think the kindest way to say is he's relentless, double downs on his set of priorities, of issues, uh, mocks opponents, has a group of supporters that are kind of in the same mode. Definitely an attempt of kind of a steamroller effect, the kind of media pool spray and the the bop, bop, bop with the executive orders. Um, Seems a little bit like we might be violating some of the anti-partisan
2: parts of the farewell address. Oh, God, yes. Oh, God, yes. I mean, uh, you know, Washington, you know, Jefferson and Madison very unwisely idealized the French Revolution the very populist idea of an empire of liberty and that, you know, the the, the terror and the tyranny that emerged from that anarchy was, you know, dismissed as an inevitable byproduct of progress. Washington was very skeptical, uh, certainly, of demagogues and of the excesses of populism. And while we don't have, we don't have sort of ideologies at the time that that are are directly translatable despite the legacies of Hamilton and, and Jefferson. Um, you know, one of the things that, that's constant that I found fascinating, going back to the ratification of debates around the Constitution, is that you ha- even then, before there were political parties, you had Americans who wanted to focus on national unity. They tended to be urban. They wanted a stronger central government. They tended to be from cities. And then you had more rural Americans who were very focused on states' rights. They were very concerned about the encroachment of federal power, a federal power that it might overwhelm their way of life. Um, and, 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 and there was a lot of economic and cultural concern and resentment. And both sides thought they were fighting for freedom. And Washington was trying to, to bridge the two and say that your interests are not ultimately different, your focus and your experience may be, and that was a titanic struggle. But Washington was very concerned about the excesses of populism, certainly about the danger of demagogues through history. And, and he very much he devoted his life largely to civic service, and he was a very modest man. That was not an act. One of the fascinating things about the edits of the farewell address is he strikes some things because he doesn't want to appear either falsely modest or that he's bragging. Um, and you know we've been playing footsie with a lot of these warnings, Washington's warnings for a long time. Um, but I think that concern uh, is certainly elevated today. and that's why you know even beyond the, the book and the speech itself, I think one of the common causes that you have and your listeners have and I have is really a belief that applied history is incredibly important, always, but especially right now. That that you know those who don't learn from history are are doomed to repeat it, and and that we need to study our history to remember our best traditions, to remember enduring wisdom, to take some courage and some comfort from that, at a time when things seem very unsettled, and 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 um, that, that provides a ballast for us
0: he was no stranger to debate say i mean he presided over the constitutional convention where i'm sure he kept silent and he was he was tremendously disciplined to be able to do that he kept silent while men had very different opinions and were very hot tempers oh yeah so so he was no opponent of Debate, but the faction idea really gets to, uh, like you say, a hyperpartisan, something that's clearly identifiable, no longer in the interests of the republic, but in the interests of such a small group.
2: Well, there's, there's, you're exactly right. And what Washington tried to do was bridge those divisions, and it's something he did going back to his brief period of time in the Virginia House of Burgesses, um, where he acted as a sort of a bridge and emissary, even as a young man, um, between the, what were the militants and the moderates. In, in, in that context, and while he didn't speak intentionally uh, at the Constitutional Convention, but war's uniform, you know, he he would go to the Indian Queen and other taverns after the long day, and to try to 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 find common ground, and that really was. Uh, a passion for him that was core to his understanding about how democracies work. You know, We all had to doubt a little bit in our own infallibility, to use Benjamin Franklin's phrase. We had to all make some sacrifices and come up with the best possible document. But that was was it really uh, rooted in classical wisdom. And I think his own character and virtue uh, was this moderation that helped make those debates a success. He was not uncomfortable with debate at all. But he knew at the end of the day that people had to show a degree of disinterestedness. That they had to put their self-interest aside and think about the larger good. And that's what some folks even then were unwilling to do. But Washington was a master at calling upon those, those better instincts of his fellow citizens.
0: It's a great thing that you bring up the... The meetings of the Indian Tavern and some of the the different side of Washington, be the human Washington, because uh, so often he's seen as a as a kind of two dimensional t- figure. It's hard in the 21st century for it not to be, because we don't have moving images, we don't even have audio, um, and you t- then tend to think of of the person as something that's just a picture on on in a textbook. But he was a human being who. In, in, not only in his recorded words, but also had off the record conversations and influenced people. Um, he also, he also experienced hurt. Um, he may not have gone on a public forum and didn't have, didn't have a Twitter type mechanism to do it, but, you know, you talk about in the, uh, in the book how Hamilton delicately has to ask him to edit some things out about his counters to attacks on him in the press.
2: You really get a sense of the man in full in the farewell address because he's at the end of his career, and he is in physical and psychic pain, and he's brittle, and he's ill-tempered, and he's tremendously wounded about the prison attacks and the attacks in the newspapers. He's not used to this as a general in the battlefield because this was a document that he's consciously trying to.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
2: Um, sum up his life's wisdom, you do get different. And one of the things I I do in the book is sort of break down the core wisdom and then the experiences in his life that led him to those conclusions to show that, that these were not new ideas. They weren't thrown at him by Alexander Hamilton. They were all his, rooted in the experience of his life. And so you get aspects uh, Insight from his time as a surveyor, a soldier, an entrepreneur, a farmer, a statesman, a politician. Um, all, all that wisdom comes out, but so do occasionally a parade of hurts and, 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 and resentments. And, you know, America has, we've always been divided between this native optimism and, and a deep skepticism. And we sort of juggled between the two. And Washington um, was, you know, he was, he could envision a nation before we had a nation. Um, and he had this great vision, and he was optimistic. But but nothing was foregone in his life, and certainly in the life of nations or democratic republics. And and you know, one one thing we don't always appreciate, but I think your audience will, and, and you will, is, is is the use of the word liberty as opposed to freedom. We use them interchangeably, but I think to the founders they were importantly and subtly different. And and when I talk about Washington's pillars of liberty. Um, the structures that could hold up our republic liberty you know freedom can be a state of nature, but liberty requires a degree of self discipline and that 's the lesson to future generations to citizens the responsibility of self governance that I think we 've lost
0: and that 's one of his pillars uh, that 's one of his pillars that you point out it does it 's not just about the government but it 's also about us. We have to be moral we have to be of high morals
2: we are the ultimate backstop you know when he talks about you know he, he, he reluctantly admits that the rise of political parties is probably inevitable but he exhorts us and says it's the duty of a wise people to restrain them to keep them focused on where they should be focused to not you know remember the Constitution doesn't mention political parties it does mention journalists I'll say but that's you know and, and Washington vigorous citizenship is the indispensable alloy it's the glue that keeps it all together and that' requires a degree of responsibility. It's enlightened opinion. It's, it's, it's learning from history and the founders explicitly were learning from history when they built our institutions whether it was the bad history of the English Civil War or the, the, you know, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire was a contemporary bestseller at precisely this time. And they're all reading it. It's the book that's most taken out of the library during the first Congress because they want to learn the mistakes uh, of the past and to try to avoid them. And it's such an an inspiring message about just the attempt we must always make to impose perspective on our problems, to learn from history and then play it forward.
0: Oh, I, I do think they were always... Always echoing the Romans, and the, the, our entire America, entire, entire American government, early American government, is based on on the Romans. I, I often say it's it's uh, it's it's not even learning Roman history isn't isn't even as important as learning that particular book, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, because that's the Rome that they knew, and it uh, and they learned yep. a lot of lessons from it. Um, what else besides um, Besides this book, which, by the way, a good reminder that we're talking about Washington's Farewell. I'm talking to John Avalon, the author of Washington's Farewell, The Founding Fathers' Warning to Future Generations. Other than us discussing the farewell, you know, how do you think it could, how do you think, like, Washington's words could be better promoted um, and better better enter our politics today?
2: Look, I I have no illusions that we're going to go back to a time when public school students across the country memorize a 6,000-word address. You know, one of the the points I make, though, is that, you know, this was definitely supplanted by the Gettysburg Address as our nation's kind of go-to civic scripture, but Gettysburg Address is 272 words. It's it's really relatable. And and, and Washington's farewell is sort of the Old Testament of American politics. It's the sort of rules of behavior dispatched by a distant God, and, and Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address is the New Testament. It's a poetic rumination on life after death. But um, So I don't think we're going to get to school kids to, to, to memorize the 6,000 words again. What I do think is that we need to make, we the people, we the citizens, need to make a much more concerted effort to teach and elevate civics again. Our country depends on it. Um, in a way that I think is, is more profound. It's not only fun, it's not only interesting, it not only gives us a sense of structure and space, Uh, And certainly in my own political columns and my time working in government, I found that history is invaluable at giving people a a sense of context of why this moment matters. But we really need to communicate that. As somebody said, you know, no one watched the Super Bowl if they didn't know the rules. We need to teach American history. We need to teach civics again. And I don't think we can simply depend on the government to do it. I think it needs to be a major philanthropic cause for citizens, beginning at your own dinner table with your kids, but but really extending forward, and I think the farewell address needs to be regarded as it was then, as, as, a, as a bookend with the Declaration of Independence, as an, an essential American document, because it was written for us. It was, we have an open letter to the American people that Washington explicitly wrote, not only for his friends and fellow citizens, but future generations. And so we need to elevate it again.
0: You mentioned in your book that this is really a gift to the people from Washington and maybe that's the way that we all should think about it if it's a gift to us maybe we should open it up and and read it as citizens right (laughs)
2: that's exactly right i mean we've got this remarkable gift a memo written by the first founding father where he explicitly tries to bridge the past his present and the future and while he addressed it to his friends and fellow citizens that's what the open letter published in the newspaper the american daily advertiser in september 1796 said to my friends and fellow citizens But its real audience was future generations of Americans. So it's this great gift to us for us to learn and and apply its principles where appropriate to the challenges of our own times, Uh, because human nature, of course, hasn't changed that much. And um, and, and it's an, an amazing document that just should be regarded as one of the essential American texts. It's rarely steered us wrong in the past, and I think it helped recenter us and reunite us as a nation going forward.
0: I'm talking to John Avlon the author of Washington's Farewell the founding father's warning to future generations he's also CNN political analyst and the editor in chief of the Daily Beast what is the best place people can find more about you and your your book
2: um, well, you know, by all means, read thedailybeast.com. Become one of the more than a million people a day who do. But um, you know, for my book, it's uh, Simon Schuster's the publisher, and they've got a good page for it. And then my personal author page um, uh, at But we've uh, we've published a number of articles about it here at the Beast, and and this is just uh, this has been my nights and weekend passion for the last four years. Everyone needs a hobby, um, and uh, and and it's been it's just been such a pleasure and it, it really i think throws for me you know what i do during the day in, in sharper relief with broader perspective
0: well i'm glad that you did it and i also highly recommend the book uh, not only a, a way to learn about washington but as i had said earlier just a good read and a, a good a good history book as well for those uh and a, and a really smooth read is an entertaining as well john thanks very much
2: thank you very much take care
0: Okay, so as John mentioned, his website is JohnAvlon, A-V-L-O-N.com. Also, the book is available at www.SimonAndSchuster, S-C-H-U-S-T-E-R is Schuster, com slash books slash Washington's hyphen farewell. We're going to have a link to it on the website as well and on Twitter at my hist. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.